This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Hi everybody, it's Doc from the John Freakin' Mirpod, and I want to let you know about our new website on WordPress. Take a few minutes and check it out. You'll be able to find pictures of the pod's guests, links to the podcast and social media accounts, ways to support the pod, how to get in touch, and our entire back catalog is there, including episode summaries. Missed these sections of the JMT episodes? You can find them there. Missed a Triple Crowner episode? Yep, that's there too. World travelers, adventure athletes, polar explorers, Barkley Marathon competitors, authors, filmmakers, documentarians, and more are waiting for you. Take a look at the new website, and just a reminder, adventure lives here. Limits, like fear, are often an illusion. Michael Jordan. I started climbing, but then I was getting cold because I couldn't, I wasn't moving. Like I fell asleep in the rain. I was getting really, really, really cold. And I thought, well, I'm going to wait out the storm a little bit. So I crawled under this overhanging rock and I was freezing. Like my feet were totally numb. And I was like, I'm going to get my space blanket out because I always carry one of those put that over me and that was like probably I mean it was a good choice for wilderness survival but probably the worst choice for the Barkley because I got warm and I fell asleep and when I woke up it was light out and it's like well I think my race is over I'm Doc 
and this is the John Freaking Muir Pod. Welcome to the John Freaking Muir Pod. Lace up those boots and sling on the pack for a romp through trails, short and long. With your host and renaissance man, Doc, it's time to embrace the suck. Welcome back to another week on the trail. I'm Doc, and this is the John Freaking Muir Pod. Let's start off with a reminder. If you are enjoying the podcast, take just a minute, help us out, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're not enjoying the pod, well, just go ahead and keep that to yourself. All right, on to this week's content. I know my hiking buddy and sometimes co-host Chopper has busted me on terminology before, saying that I always introduce episodes as a very special episode. But this week, guess what? We have a very special episode for our listeners, and I am probably underselling the special part here. This week, we are joined in studio by none other than ultra runner and extreme badass Jamil Corey. Back in 2015, Jamil hit the lottery and was accepted into four of the toughest 100-mile races out there. The Hurt 100, the Hard Rock 100, the Ultra Trail du Mont Blanc, and yes, the Barkley Marathons. He completed three of the four and came up just short in the Barkley with a 56-hour, four-lap tap out. Welcome to the John Freak Amir Pod, Jamil. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. Awesome. So do you have any backpacking or through hiking in your past? I do. Uh, well, I've been backpacking and hiking since I was a kid. I was in the Boy Scouts. So started in Tiger Cubs, went all the way up through Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts, Eagle Scouts. And I was even active as an adult leader for a few years as you know, my dad was involved and uh, my younger brothers and my cousins. So I've got uh, a long history in the outdoors uh, all that kind of stuff. And then in terms of through hiking, I took on the Arizona trail, uh, before it was officially completed. Uh, it was back in 2008. It was right after my first year out of college working as a tax accountant here in Phoenix. And I think it was the day after tax season was over and, and taxes were due. I was on the Mexico border ready to hike. And I through hiked the 800 mile long trail in 31 days mostly solo. I had a few sections where my dad joined me and, and some friends, but mostly solo. And it was quite the experience. That is phenomenal. I, I knew you're an ultra runner, of course, but I didn't know you had the, the through hiking experience. So that is uh, you know, double bonus for us here on the pod. Fantastic. And I asked because here on the podcast, we go strictly by trail name. So, you know, Doc is not printed on my paycheck or on my driver's license. That's just my trail name. And I was wondering if in your through hiking experience, you also picked up a trail name. Funny enough, I did not. Um, so, yeah, I guess I, I have a little experience on the long trail, Appalachian Trail as well. I did half of, I did all of the Appalachian Trail through Vermont, but in my, back then, through hiking Arizona Trail was not, a thing like it is today and it didn't have much of a culture or a lot of people. I think I saw two other people that were through hiking the whole time spent one night, I think where I was next to someone else and that was it. Uh, the, and like I said, the trail wasn't even completed. So we were at one section, I was just bushwhacking the future trail through the desert. There was just little reflectors attached to trees. 
maybe not the smartest move, but I think it describes a little bit about who I am possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, so never had a trail name, but if I did have one today, it would probably be Jam Jam. That's kind of my internet name sometimes for some of my YouTube stuff. Jam Jam. Yeah. yeah, since since you were so solitary out there, I mean, the tradition of the trail name is that you get it from somebody else. So I guess if there's nobody else around, it's tough to pick up a trail name. No one to give me a name. So yeah. <laughs> Very good. Hey, have you listened to the podcast before? Uh, I think I caught, you did one with Michael Wardian, I believe. Yes, that's right. I think I did. I did listen to that one. Okay. And I only ask because we have a regular feature on the, on the podcast called the pro tip insight of the week. So I want to make sure you're aware of that. That is uh, towards the end of the episode. I will turn to you and ask you, what is your pro tip insight of the week? What special tip trick insight can you share with our listeners to make their next outdoor adventure that much better? So don't be surprised when I turn to you. And sometimes it just comes from the free flow of conversation during the episode. Great. Okay. Hey, another feature we've been doing this season is the must-bring gear review. So here's how it works. If you were to let a stranger pack your bag with pretty much generic gear for a multi-day hike, what is the one specific piece of gear that you would insist on being packed? And if you've got a particular brand for that specific piece of gear, even better. So Jam Jam, what's your, uh, your must-bring piece of gear and why? For a multi for a backpack, multi-day backpack. Yes, probably. Maybe it would be a compass. I think that would be a good choice, um, just in terms of navigation, and and it's kind of fitting with the with the Barkley too. But yeah, I would say a compass, and um, I think I'm using Sunto compass these days. Yeah, definitely for the Arizona trail before it was actually a trail, right? That that coming yeah. very handy, and the Barkley. We're going to get into the Barkley because that's, that's one of my obsessions and I'm, I'm so happy to have you on to talk about that from your firsthand perspective. Absolutely. Okay. All right. So, hey, let's, let's back up a little bit before we get to all the adventure and let's talk about uh, your background and growing up. I know you shared a little bit about being a Boy Scout and progressing through all the levels there, but uh, what other hobbies, where, where did you grow up? Big family, did they, uh, was it typical for them to spend a lot of time in the outdoors? And is that where you, you caught the bug for, for outdoor adventure? And how did you get into trail running? Uh, yeah, I grew up in Phoenix, been here my whole life. Um, and several generations have been here. And not a lot of people can say that, I guess. A lot of people moved here since I was, since I was born. But uh, yeah, I would say my initial introduction was probably through Boy Scouts, but quickly my whole family, you know, participated as well, got into it. And so, yeah, definitely going outdoors is part of my childhood growing up. So not only weekend trips with my local troop, but summer camps. So I started to hit up some of those in Arizona and then beyond and started doing, you know, trips to California, Emerald Bay on Catalina Island was amazing. And then Philmont Scout Ranch, which is a high adventure camp where they do longer backpacking trips into the backcountry. So you might do a seven day trek, a hundred plus miles. And the first time I went, I went, I didn't go with my home troop. I went with another one. And so I was with a bunch of people I kind of didn't really know and just backpacking all through the mountains in Northern New Mexico. Uh, Great experience. And it really, 
helped solidify my love for the outdoors and for traveling long distances outdoors. And that led me to trail running eventually. So I started running, I did a season in, of cross country, I think in middle school, it didn't really stick, but then I rejoined track in college or not on college, sorry, in high school, I tried out for the golf and soccer teams and didn't make them. I still wanted to participate in a high school sport. They don't cut people from track. At least they didn't in that day. Uh, and so if you show up, you're on the team. And, and so there I was, I became a runner and the combination of running and then what I was doing backpacking with the scouts, you know, I started to push the limits. I would get my gear list down, you know, try and cut out and go as ultra light as possible. And then I was, I was getting fitter and stronger and trying to push my pace. So, you know, there's times when we're racing each other with, with backpacks on, uh, or at some point it's almost like a day pack, even though we're out there for a couple nights and with just me and my scouting friends. And, uh, soon after that in college, I found out about trail and ultra running and it was just the perfect fit for me. I'm, I can do a three day backpacking trip in a day and cover a lot of ground and see a lot of awesome places. So kind of my background and how I got into all this. Fantastic. I've got, I got some questions. I want to unpack some of that stuff. You just, you just talked about mm -hmm. right there. Uh, first of all, Emerald Bay on Catalina. So I've done the, the trans Catalina trail a couple of times. And as you're going on the coast of the, uh, the northernmost part of the trans Catalina trail, you pass by a number of harbors and bays and, and there's, I, I think that's where the Emerald Bay, uh, Boy Scout because there's great signage there say this is the the Boy Scout so you actually spent time uh, at that camp yeah we did a whole week there and I did there was a higher adventure program I think it was called Rugged E it was like Rugged Emerald Bay and I think the first day we had to do a mile swim across the bay in open water mm -hmm. and I like I didn't train swimming at all. And we just jump in the water and we go swim a mile. It's like, welcome to the rugged E program. And then we did, it was such an amazing week. I mean, we did so many cool things. We did like a cross Island overnight mountain biking trip where we had to pack everything. And I think we rode in towards one of the other harbors. And there was like a secondary outpost where we, we made camp. We did an overnight war canoe trip where we paddled these canoes with all of our gear into this other bay. We had to go like 10 or 12 miles and then we did cliff jumping there. We did night kayaking where these fish are jumping over the kayaks. This is just awesome. I mean, that's what I loved about scouts is there was just so many like um, incredible experiences that I never would have been able to be part of without that program and, and just gained so many, so many great skills, life skills, outdoor skills that, I think, you know, if you didn't have that exposure, you just wouldn't be taught those things. That sounds phenomenal. Actually, I feel bad about myself just having, you know, done the Trans Catalina Trail and not any of those other activities. That, that's awesome. It's really great. I mean, they packed it in for sure. Yeah. And then let's go back to your high school experience. Uh, you got cut by soccer and by golf of golf. all things. Yep. Man. Competitive sport. But you didn't give up. You, you you put in for track. And were you a track star in high school? I wouldn't say a track star. No, I was, you know, 5'11", 120 pounds, just a stick figure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I made varsity probably my junior, senior year of cross country. Um, 
I think I, whenever the, the course in the cross country meets was had more mountains or hills in it, I would do better, you know, funny enough. Um, but yeah, I was never, um, never winning all the meets or I might've made state a couple times like on cross country just, um, but yeah, but definitely wasn't a star. Didn't get any college offers to run with anyone. Wow. And do you ever hear back from your, your high school coaches or teammates? Because that's like, I'm just going to do an analogy here. If, if you were on the baseball team and uh, this is like somebody on your baseball team making it to the majors or someone, someone on your soccer team going English Premier League uh, or, or golfing on the PGA, right? Jamil Corey is you're, you're at the top of, of the ultra running game and, and just these races that you've competed in and the Barclays, I mean, has anybody reached out to you from high school and just kind of kept up with you and followed your, your accomplishments? Uh, not exactly. I think we've early on, maybe in my running ultra running career, we would go back and help, help our coach with a couple of things like with track and stuff, but yeah, no, not no. really. <laughs> They're missing out. I guess I have to finish Barkley first, you know, and then oh, they'll pay wow. attention. That is a high bar. That's a high bar. And when did, when did you realize, I, I am fascinated by ultra runners because when did you realize that 26.2 miles just wasn't enough and you needed to do, to do more than that? I didn't start with marathons really. Um, I, I did one, it was a trail slash road marathon. I just went straight from living my life and backpacking and doing all that kind of stuff, just straight into ultras and trail, long distance trail running. Um, there was really no progression. I never thought that I had a limit really, maybe just from my hiking and backpacking days. Um, I think it was just too, like I, I fell in with a local Phoenix trail running group and they were just really down to earth, really great people, people of all ages, of all fitness levels. And they were running ultra marathon distances, long distances. Um, remember seeing a guy wearing this across the years shirt and across the years is this multi-day race that we now direct. But back then, you know, it, it was something I didn't even know about. And it, on the arm sleeve, it said 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours. And it was like a running event. It said like run, walk, eat, nap. And I was like, it's weird. That sounds interesting. I'm going to go look this up on the internet. And yeah, I basically saw the guy's shirt and I looked it up and I was like, let's sign up for this. I was 20 years old my brothers who were still in high school, they're like, yeah, let's sign up as well. So I went from running one marathon, 26.2 straight up to doing a 12 hour night race. And my brothers, I think their longest they had ever run is 13 miles. They also participated. This was 2005 and we all ran more or less 50 miles, ran and walked. We just absorbed what was, what people were telling us. We were talking to all these guys that like, at the time they're kind of legends to us, you know, they had been doing this for a while and they're telling us, Hey, this is the strategy, you know, walk and eat every other lap and all these kinds of things. So we just didn't really know what we were doing, but we ended up running 50 miles overnight. It's awesome. Wow. And I, I heard the word lap. So, Oh yeah. It was on a 500 meter loop course. Oh. It was not a high school track. It was like around this guy's property. So he just built the, his own custom track with gravel and we just did tons of loops. Wow. That's, that's a lot of loops. 
Yes. <laughs> that, that is a, it makes it very social though. And it makes it, you don't have to carry anything, which is awesome. And the aid station is every 500 meters. So if you forget something, or you need a drink or grab some more snacks. It's right there. I mean, it's hard to argue with an event like that. It's really fun. And just, it's like a walking buffet. That's a fair point. I was going to say that's got to get pretty monotonous, but you bring up some very good points. Uh, it's not like the Moab 240 where the next aid station is a marathon away. So it, it, does, exactly. have some, it does have some benefits. Yep. Very good. Very good. So let's talk about 2015 a little bit. Um, you participated in something called Slam of the Damned. And I'm curious as to, is that your title that you gave to it? Or was, is this kind of an official well-known thing? Because I had not heard of that before. Yeah, I mean, slams, the, the Grand Slam is the four oldest 100-mile races. And I think they now let you pick four out of the six oldest. It's races like Western States and Wasatch and Leadville and stuff like that. So the, and then people started making their other slams because, so it was basically if you pick four races that are hundred milers, it creates a slam and it started getting kind of out of control where people are like, well, here's the Western slam and the all American slam and the Rocky mountain slam and all kinds of things. It's cool though. It's, it's, it's a way to shoot for something big. The grand slam is like crazy achievement. It's 400 mile races in one summer. Uh, I never, I've never done the grand slam or any, slam before and i just went on twitter after i i just got lucky on in these lotteries you know you apply i think all of us ultra runners you know these races are some of them are capped you can they only have 300 spots but they have 800 people apply so you just have to apply to everything and like hope you'll get into one so that you can have build a calendar like an epic summer race calendar for yourself and so just applied to all these races and like got into one then another, then another, then another. It's like, oh my gosh, I hit the lottery here. I hit the jackpot. I got into all these ridiculously hard races and this, this should be a slam of some kind. And I don't know, it was like the lucky slam or I had a couple ideas. I threw it out on Twitter. I said, what should, what should this slam be called? And I listed the four races and some people were, were naming some stuff and Christopher McDougall, who I'm, I'm friends with, and he wrote Born to Run. Mm-hmm. And he was the one that coined the term. So he, of course, it would come from him because he's just, you know, <laughs> uh, an expert at language and, and writing. And, and he, he coined the term. So all credit due to him. Uh, he said Slam of the Damned. And that immediately struck with, stuck with me and struck a chord. And I was like, yep, that is exactly what this is. And so it was born. Christopher McDougall knows how to turn a phrase. So very, very appropriate. Very good. Very good. Now talk about the application process process. If there are 800 applicants and only 300 slots, is it just first come first serve or uh, is it, is reputation or past achievements? Is that factored into the process? Yeah. And that was all hypothetical. I mean, each one is its own unique beast. So I think with hurt 100, they award cola nuts, which is something that grows out on the islands there in Hawaii. And for different things, I think, I don't even know, honestly, how they give them out. Mm-hmm. It might be because you do a lot for the race or you volunteer with them a ton. Or if you're, if you have a good result, you're like an elite athlete of some kind, you might get more of these nuts in the bag that they pull from or something mm-hmm. more tickets, so to speak. And so, uh, 
yeah, I, I don't really, I honestly don't remember the process there, but I might've had a couple and got picked on that one. Barkley is, you know, it's a secretive application process and who knows how they pick there. You have to, you know, infamously submit an essay on why you're allowed to run and who knows if they just pull essays out of a hat or they look for a certain word count or mm-hmm. a phrase. I don't know, but, um, you know, I was able to, I, I ran, I mean, Barkley, I did run in 2014 and I ran a, I got a fun run finish mm-hmm. and I had been working for years to build up my resume for the Barkley. I knew back in 2006, seven that I wanted to someday run the Barkley. I was like, well, in order to even apply, I'm, I'm going to have to run a lot of hundred milers. Cause you look at the five loop finishers and you see a couple of similarities so they they have a lot of hard 100 mile finishes like they run hard rock they run maybe leadville and western states but then they also do through hikes and so i think that was probably part of the reason like well i better do a through hike and so the arizona trail looks like a good one i'm not gonna do the whole appalachian trail or appalachian trail or pacific crest trail right now so I knew I wanted to do a through hike and that was honestly invaluable. I, you know, probably some of the most pain I've ever been in day after day after day after day, working through injuries while still putting in 12 to 14 hour days on your feet uh, is something that I think only through hikers will um, understand. And that multi-day experience is so valuable for the Barkley. And so, yeah, I was able to get into Barkley again, kind of off of my, my fun run the year before. Hard Rock is not a straight across lottery. They have these different buckets. So they've got a separate lottery for people that have finished five times or more. Then there's a lottery for people that have never started the bark or never started Hard Rock. And then there's the everybody else pile. So people that have one to four finishes or have started but never finished. Uh, and so, yeah, at that point in time in 2015, I had already had a couple finishes. So I'm already my chances are a bit elevated Mm -hmm. and then UTMB they change the process. It seems like every year, but you do have to qualify for the race. You have to run a certain number of events at a certain difficulty level. They really want to make sure that people aren't showing up there and it's their first time, you know, being in out in the mountains in inclement weather, carrying gear on your back and kind of being self-sufficient. I mean, the international races are very different than here in the U S where a lot of times with an ultra marathon, I mean, we, we kind of handhold you a lot of the way it's like, you can have a pacer and you can have, we'll have drop bags all over the course for you. And we have aid stations every four miles. And out there it's like you run UTMB, you get, I think it's two drop bags. It might even be one drop bag the whole race and your crew is limited and you're not a, like pacers don't exist anywhere but the u.s so you can't have a friend or a, someone else run with you on the course they would have to be entered in the event so very different over there um, it sounds like you're very much on your own over there yeah yeah for sure you you have to be self-sufficient and that's part of the uh part of the point really um is they you know they have mandatory gear kits as well so I mean, even a race like the Barkley, you, you are responsible for yourself, but you pick your own kit, but over there it's, it's, they'll check your bag. And if you don't have, you know, the whistle and the, whatever, the cell phone and your light and your jacket, you're out or you're penalized in some way. So. Hmm. 
Wow. Now we've had uh, a couple of people on before who have participated in the Barkley or who have been accepted into the Barkley. Uh, Michael Wardian and Hunter Leininger, who's an adventure racer, uh, young guy, 18, 19 years old. And they were very, you know, I asked them to kind of share their experiences and they were very vague and I think purposefully vague on the application process. So I know that it is, is it's secretive and I'm not sure how much you are able to share or not share about the application process for the Barclay. Cause that's just, it, it, it's, the Barclay is fascinating for a number of reasons. One of which is the, the secrecy about the application process. Yeah, it's part of the mystique of the race. There's a lot of mystique around it. And I think that's part of the magic of it. Um, but yeah, if you, where there's a will, there's a way, I will say. Mm-hmm. If you want to find out, uh, if you're meant to find out, you will. And that was true for me. I didn't know for a long time how to enter. And then, um, yeah, you get to know the right people and you kind of build up your resume. Like it's just like, if you start to do the right things, you'll be around the right people and, and it'll happen is that's kind of what I would say. All right. That was masterful. That was just as vague. Very, very good. Jamil. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I can still run it then, you know, I'm not going to be disqualified. <laughs> very good. Hey, would you mind taking us through that slam of the damned back in 2015. Let's start off with the, with, I know you finished the, the first three and then you kind of ran into that wall, uh, ran into the wall. I mean, you, you've, you've finished 56 hours and four loops of, of the Berkeley. That's not really running into the wall, but you didn't get the, the fifth loop on that. But I'd like to go through each of the, each of the races uh, from 2015 and just kind of share kind of your, your experience there and uh, impressions and, and uh, what went right and, and what you would fix. So let's start off with the, the HURT 100. And the HURT stands for the Hawaiian Ultra Running Team, correct? Yeah, okay. that's right. Yep. Um, yeah, that's great. They put on a, on a wonderful event out there. Uh, it's, it's a five-loop course as well. So okay. I think there's a lot of parallels with the Barkley. And I I wouldn't say I was in great shape leading up to that race, but I treated it as a really great training run to get kick off my Barkley training. It's in January. So it's just a, a couple months before Barkley. And it's funny. I was, uh, have you ever heard of the a gentleman? He's an ultra runner. He goes by the name, the fruitarian. His name's Michael Arnstein. I don't think so, but I'm writing that name down right now. Okay. <laughs> So, um, he's, he kind of got, he got well known for he, like following a fruitarian diet. So he would just eat fruit and basically leafy vegetables. Sometimes I think it conclude includes some nuts and seeds as well. Um, but it's like a raw vegan diet essentially. And I was a little bit into that. Um, you know, I eat a plant-based diet now, but you know, back, back then, like maybe like a decade ago, I was like, trying this thing out and mostly probably because of him, he was making these YouTube videos and um, just like having these like breakthrough performances at the marathon, like running like two hours, 28 minutes at the marathon, just like, you know, espousing this diet is the way to do to go. So, um, and I'm by all means not espousing this diet. Um, I think, you know, fruits and vegetables are a huge part of a healthy diet, but I would say, you know, do not do this. Um, <laughs> uh, but anyways, like 
he was living in Hawaii at the time and I'm friends with him. And so I, I stayed with him before the race. And I think he was, I think he, he usually runs hurt, but I don't know if he did that year, but I was, I was able to crash with him, which was actually pretty fun. No, I think he did run the race that year too. So that was like a, a total aside random thing. But, um, I remember like sleeping in his garage with like a pile of coconuts next to my bed. And like, I put my race number and kit like on the coconuts and like take a picture the night before the race. It was pretty funny. Um, so the race went pretty well. I mean, I um, thought you, I thought you were going to go there with, you stayed with him and you lived on his diet for, you know, two weeks leading up to the race. And that was a big mistake, but no, I, I think I had already made those mistakes prior. So I wasn't, I wasn't trying to race the di- the, the event on, um, like a fruitarian diet. Right. Although if you are going to follow that lifestyle, Hawaii is a great place to do it because there is tropical fruit everywhere and it's abundant and available. So, um, pretty awesome. And I think a couple of years when Mike isn't running the race, he's out there. I I've seen pictures of him on course before with a pile of coconuts, like chopping them open and handing them to runners just as like an impromptu aid station, which I thought was hilarious and awesome. Um, but yeah, the food at some of the aid stations in this race is amazing. They've had like all this prepackaged stuff and, you know, it had like a Hawaiian twist to everything. It was really amazing. It's put on by, by all the local people and they've been doing it for 20 plus years, Mm -hmm. just such a family vibe. Uh, there's a great crew from Hawaii that would come run our races. So I got to see them out there at the aid station and you basically climb up a ridge, you climb up from like the start onto a ridge and then you drop off to this aid station, you climb right back up and then you do it on a third spur. So you have like these three spurs that just go right up to the top and the whole top of the trail is covered in roots. I mean, there's no dirt to be seen. It's just roots everywhere. And it fortunately it didn't rain much our year, but if it's in a rainy year, you're just slipping all over the place. It's one of the tough, it's a really tough hundred miler for sure. Uh, and just the, the mental fortitude needed to do the five loops. Like you're right back at the start, you know, your car is right over there. You don't have to keep going back out, <laughs> but you mentally need to keep going back out. So, uh, I don't really remember. I didn't have like a phenomenal performance, but it was really, like I said, just a training race for me to get prepped for Barkley to kick off my training. And I really wanted to go run the event and then not be totally destroyed afterwards. And I think I was able to continue training, maybe take a week down and then I was able to go right back and ramp up training again. So that was the first one. Yeah. And these are from my notes here. It sounds like these trails are former uh, pig trails through the forest that have been kind of uh, improved a little bit, but that roots, the roots don't sound like a whole lot of fun. I know that there are a lot of roots on certain sections of the Appalachian trail that people talk about as being just hellish. Yeah. You can, if you look up some of the photos of the trails they use out there, it's, it's laughable. It's, it's insane to think it's really a trail, but it wouldn't surprise me if they were, you know, pig trails. Okay. All right. Hey, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the other two races from Slam of the Damned and then get to the Barkley. So stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. Want to make a podcast? Spotify has got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. 
Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your pod- podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like my creativity has raised to another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. This is Jamil Curry. I'm an ultra runner, entrepreneur, and filmmaker, and you're listening to the John Freaking Mir Pod. And welcome back. We're talking to Jam Jam, also known as Jamil Corey, uh, talking about the Slam of the Damned in 2015. And let's talk about the Hard Rock 100, the second in the, the Slam for you that year. Yeah, the Hard Rock, that was the race that when I first saw pictures of it from the 2006 edition, which was a year after I started running ultras, that I was like, that, that's the race I want to do. I saw these amazing photos by one of the participants that ran in 2006, just these incredible landscapes that looked like paintings. Above treeline, green grass everywhere, wildflowers, blue skies, clouds, runners on these skinny trails going, you know, almost impossibly steep up and down these with, you know, jagged rocks behind and ridge lines as far as the eye could see is like, this looks amazing and I have to do this. So my hard rock journey started basically when I saw those photos. I went out to the race the next edition. I was volunteering and helping doing trail work. First ran the race in 2009 and then again in 2013. And so this was my third edition of running the event in 2015. And I had, a. we could probably do a whole podcast on my 2013 hard rock, but essentially I, I was, um, in like seventh place, running smart, running strong the first 30 miles. And then I got sick. I think it was from some nutrition I was using, um, was throwing up at the high point of the course at 14,000 feet on Handy's Peak and limped my way into Grouse Gold Shade Station at mile 42. I couldn't eat or drink, couldn't even take a sip of water I would throw up. And I laid on a cot for four hours and basically 90% of the field passed me. So I went from seventh place to 109th place out of 140 people. And finally, like laying on the cot, finally got feeling good again. And then I got back up and continued on my way. And I ended up having the best 60 mile run of my life. I was super fit going into this race. And so once I cleared out that sickness, just basically ran strong through the finish, have like the fastest second half split in history of hard rock. I passed 95 people finished 14th in like P and PR. So it's crazy. Wow. Um, so I had some expectations going into hard rock. Like I really wanted to run strong and, you know, 
maybe prove what I could do on that course. I knew I could do so much better without that four to six hours of really not moving on the course, you know, two hours being sick on the mountain, four hours on a cot. It's like doing the math and thinking, man, I could really have a strong race. So, um, yeah, going into hard rock 2015, part of the slam, I was doing my typical long run three weeks before the race where I do a big 30 to 40 mile section of the course and, the that year in particular there's always a variance in the snow conditions so some years there's a ton of snow and they're like not even sure if it's going to melt out in time other years there's nothing and there's even could be fire danger so that year tons of snow and it was melting quick in july you know three weeks before the race and it was so there's so much snow melt going on this one section called pole creek I was out there just by myself doing this long training run and the rivers in the afternoon, they're starting to rise up and it was really swollen and I couldn't find a safe way to cross this river. Um, there's no bridge. There's no way to hop a rock or anything. So I just was like, I have to just jump the river and it's like found this rock that was higher up this big boulder. And I jumped off of it with a running leap and landed on the other side and and kept going and maybe it was adrenaline or something and i just knew i had to finish the run but my ankle was hurting a little bit finished the run okay and woke up the next morning i could not put weight on my right ankle it's like impossible and so here i am you know two and a half weeks before the race i think it was it lasted i think close to a week where i was just like couldn't put any weight on it at all and so pretty worried. It's like, how am I going to even finish this slam? And it healed up enough for me to tow the line, to start the race, to get out there. But about, I don't know, 50 miles in maybe, um, it came back and it was hurting real bad. And so I was, I couldn't run anymore. So I just had to hike it and I was using my poles and it was all taped up. I got to the finish line. It wasn't pretty. It's like my slowest hard rock ever. I think it was 36 hours, uh, way, way below my expectations or where I wanted to be. Um, but I got the finish done. So mm -hmm. I don't know. That's kind of my 2015 hard rock in a nutshell there. It, there's not a whole lot from the race itself other than I just basically had to walk it in for a really long time. And what, run. When, when was the, when was, what year was the sickness and then the PR on the last 60 miles? That was 2013. That so was two years before. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Hey, I am all in to see a documentary on that. That, that is a movie right there. So you know, when, yeah. when is that being made? I mean, if there was only footage of it, right? <laughs> well, maybe we do fictionalized account. Who, who would play you in the movie? I don't know. <laughs> no idea. Okay. All right. Let's go on to the, uh, the ultra trail du Mont Blanc that's over in Europe. Yeah. Yeah. So my first time going over there. And so, yeah, this is not a lot of people will run hard rock and then even Western States and try and do UTMB because it's not a whole lot of time in between these events. I think there's six weeks. So finished hard rock. I still have this kind of lingering ankle issue. Um, and I ended up running another race in between because I felt like I needed a training run, I guess. I ran the Tushers 93K, which was this inaugural race in Utah. 
I somehow finished that and then went over there for UTMB. And I just remember I arrived into Chamonix after dark, got into my Airbnb and like woke up in the morning and looked up. I was like this huge window in the bedroom I was staying in. And it's like Mont Blanc is right up there. And if you've never been out there before, it's like nothing else in the United States. Like there's nothing like that that exists here where you can be in this valley at 3000 feet and look up at, I think Mont Blanc is like 16,000 feet. So it's like 13,000 feet above you is this peak of this mountain. And there's a glacier that extends like halfway down into the valley floor. It's unbelievable. And I still get kind of chills thinking about it um, just from that first time being out there. So, and which country is this in? That's in France. France. Um, but then you also travel, the UTMB travels through, France, then Italy, then Switzerland, and then you finish back in France. So you go around the Mont Blanc Massif. It takes a hundred miles to run around this mountain, basically. Right. And it's a it's a famous hiking trail and it links up tons of amazing towns and villages along the way that all have their own little flavor. So it's, I mean, it's the biggest trail running festival in the world. Um, and for a good reason, it's, the setting is is beautiful, unlike anywhere else. And there's just so many people. There's, you know, 10,000 runners, trail runners in a week out there that are competing, not to mention all of everyone else who's out there cheering and supporting. And I mean, you feel like you are a professional athlete in the Olympics, even no matter what your pace is. There's people in every town cheering you on. Uh, it's really amazing, amazing experience. And the atmosphere there is so good. They, they really play up the theatrics of it. There's theme music that plays that gets you all emotional just listening to it. It's, it's really, really awesome. If you ever get a chance to go over there, even just to witness it, I would say take the chance if you get it, you know, post this era yeah. of things that's going on. Um, so, so, I've, so I've run the uh, LA marathon three times mm-hmm. and that, that in itself is a spectacle. I mean, that's, you know, just the number of people lining the streets and, and the bands playing and everything else they've got going on. Really, yeah. Really cool. But what, what you've just described uh, with Mont Blanc, it, it sounds exponentially more epic. That's uh yeah. I mean, for very enticing. Maybe the feeling, and I have run, I've just run one big city road marathon, which was, I thought, an awesome experience, uh, New York City. But it's like, take what you get from a big road marathon. Like, there is a level of, you know, excitement just being with that many people doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. But imagine it for people that love trail running and ultra running and long distance hiking type of things and wilderness travel it amplifies it to another level. I mean, it's like nothing in the U S you know, hard rock is obviously awesome for that wilderness remote experience. Western States has its own thing, but, um, UTMB is something different. Is it also also a hiking trail? Yeah. The tour, the, I forget what they call it. I think it's just the tour du Mont Blanc. Like Mm -hmm. that's started as that. I mean, it's, it connects all these huts and villages and towns. So people would go and hike it. And I don't know, I guess even runner ultra runners will do it in like three to four days and they'll stay in little villages along the way. But yeah, people will hike the whole trail in I don't know how many days, maybe it's a week or, mm-hmm. or, or longer, you know, wine, wine and cheese and stuff like that. Right. The European, whatever they do. <laughs> European uh, through hiking. Got it. Yeah. 
And so, yeah, like I was like, well, I'm doing you here to do UTMB. It's probably a once in a lifetime experience for me uh, just to even get into the event. And so it's going to, you know, toe the line and go for it. And um, yeah, it ended up kind of being for me a similar experience to hard rock. I had a, a great run through uh, Cormier in Italy, which is the one major kind of one of a couple major aid stations where your crew might be there to meet you and you get a drop bag. It's like 40, 40 miles in or so. And then, and then I basically had to hike from there to the finish. So I think it was 37 hours for me. Couldn't run the second half of the race just because the carryover of the ankle um, mm. from UTMB or from hard rock. So, um, but you know, I'm just proud it didn't quit. And I, you know, I just persevered and got through it and I didn't suffer like a permanent, any permanent damage from either any of those runs. You know, I've been able to do a lot since then. So I'm thankful for that. Right now, 37 hours. Is there any sleep involved during that time period or are you, are you <laughs> on your feet and moving for 37 hours? Yeah, I have this bad, especially back then, this bad history of napping during races. I think it's an ongoing joke of Jamil napping in the forest um, or at aid stations. There's probably a million pictures of me on the internet sleeping during races. So uh, yeah, I, I slept on the trail, I think a couple times, but I didn't get much sleep. It's probably just a couple hours. Um, yeah. Right. And sleep is a huge factor or lack of sleep is a huge factor in the Barclays from what I have uh, seen and heard having to do five loops in 60 hours. There's not a whole lot of time for sleep. And when you get into that fourth and fifth loop or even, even sooner than that, and you're sleep deprived, making your way and making decisions uh, is, is compounded by that. Absolutely. I mean, there's not, a lot of room for air these days in the Barkley. He wants to make it that hard so that you can't rest and sleep and think, and you can't use that as a strategy. So you've got to get used to no sleep, sleep deprivation, what that does to you and how you're going to overcome that and use the little bit of sleep that you maybe can get as, as a strategy and timely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, for some of our listeners who are, who are just their first time listeners that are just now tuning in, have no idea what the Barkley Marathons are all about, uh, let's give them a little uh, background and history on this. So the Barkley Marathons takes place in Tennessee. Yep. And it was created by Laz Lake, whose alternate name is... So his real name is Gary Cantrell That's and right, his Gary kind Cantrell. of pen, his pen name is Lazarus Lake. Yeah. Yes. And so, well, he, he is, he is himself an ultra runner and uh, growing up or, you know, at some point in his history, James Earl Ray escaped from a prison in Tennessee and was gone. He was, he was out for about 60 hours and they found him. Uh, just a few miles away from the prison. He was unable to make it too far. He was just exhausted by the terrain and everything else in his way. And uh, Gary Laz said to himself or others, oh, that's just ridiculous. I, if I'd have been gone for 60 hours, I could have gone 100 miles. And there is the idea 
the creation of the Berkeley marathons. And so he went on to create this race. It's on the same loop. You have to do it five times out in the, uh, the area where this prison is. And in fact, some of the course goes actually underneath the prison. And uh, it is such a difficult race because of the terrain and because of the parameters that in the course of 30 plus years of, of doing this race, there are like 15 finishers. You nailed it. It's <laughs> just, that's just insanity. That's insanity. Yeah. And so when, when did it dawn on, on you, Jamil, that this is something I want to do? I mean, pretty much kind of as soon as I heard about it, I think I saw the, I might've saw the website. I actually don't remember how I heard about it first, mm-hmm. but I kind of knew that I would do it in 2007. The first time I went up to spectate or a help at the hard rock. And it was after a day of course, helping to course mark on the hard rock course. I'm with all these hard rock vets, multiple hard rock finisher guys. And we're hanging out at Charlie's house. He's one of the co-creators of the hard rock course. And he's the, was the course marker for, you know, the first 25 years of the race. And there's just, I don't know, there's like maybe six or seven of us hanging out in the living room of his house and every single other person except for me in the room had been to Barkley, participated, done it a bunch of times. And they're all talking, swapping stories about it, you know, without giving away details. And I was like, I guess I'm, des- I'm destined to do this just because I'm here right now. You know, just hearing them talk about these stories is like, man, this sounds, sounds crazy. Someday I'm going to do that. And were any of them finishers of the Barkley? No one in that room was a finisher, but some people in the room were fun run finishers mm-hmm. and multiple time fun run finishers. And the fun run for our first time listeners or, or people who are unaware of the Barkley fun run is three loops. Three out of the five loops. Yep. Mm-hmm. And they have a 12, it's a 12 hour cutoff. If you do the math, 12 hours per lap, that's 60 hours. But if you want to, you actually get to be considered a fun run, quote unquote, finisher if you finish under 40 hours. So even though you can't continue to go to loop four, if you're over 36 hours, you can still be considered a fun run finisher if you're under 40. Got it. Got it. Now with, with uh, your indulgence, I would like to go through your experience on the, on the Barclays, uh, starting when you got the letter in the mail letting you know that you had made it. Yeah. I mean, Laz sends out his condolences. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm so, I regret to inform you, you've been accepted. So, uh, you know, if you are, have any brain cells left, you will immediately decline your entry, basically kind of discouraging you from continuing down this path because there's nothing but pain and misery ahead for you. Um, You know, it's all part of the, the whole mystique of the race and, Mm -hmm. and everything. Yeah. And there's, there's only, there's a certain number of participants that are allowed to, to, uh, to enter. Yep. And one of those, go ahead. I was gonna say, and, and one of those participants, they, they pick somebody who is totally unqualified. Right. Yeah. And and is, is that, is that person notified in the letter that, that they are that person or is it just the standard letter? 
Yeah, I don't, I don't think they're told in advance that, but they do call them the sacrificial virgin. I mean, you're a virgin if it's your first time. So, right. yeah. Okay. Now, so, so you get your letter of condolence and there are certain things that you have to bring to the race with you, especially if you're a first timer. Yeah. Yeah. Your first, your first time you have to bring a license plate from your home state or country. And those end up becoming part of the race, uh, ornaments maybe i don't know the atmosphere they hang them up and it becomes this huge wall of license plates it's pretty cool actually it's grown over the years so there's tons of them now and and then yeah in subsequent years uh he asks for different things so um i think i was well the race got canceled in last year we were supposed to bring moxie soda which is some sort of orange colored soda i've actually never tasted it uh, that's popular, I believe, in the East Coast. So it's hard to find it. I think I ended up ordering it on Amazon and shipping it to John Kelly's parents' house, which is right outside the the, the park there. And there might be some Moxie soda sitting there to this day. Hope I should probably find out because I think I owe him some soda. So it's always something different every year. Yeah. Do you remember what you had to bring in 2015? I don't. I know I've had to give him a shirt, like a shirt before, socks before. Um, I think finishers have to bring cigarettes. So hopefully someday I'll be able to give him cigarettes. Nice. Nice. I, I, you know what? I am, I am going on record right now and saying that you will be bringing him cigarettes in the future. Appreciate that. <laughs> so you show up to, uh, to the race. It's a, it's a campground. It's a state park, correct? Yep. It's Frozen Head State Park. Frozen Head State Park. That's right. And how do, they, how do you get oriented to the course? Do they give you a map? Do they say, hey, you can use GPS. Here's the course. Is it on, uh, is it on gut hook? <laughs> uh, well, I didn't have, the first time I went in 2014, I didn't have any information. I didn't really know anyone who was going to be running. They don't publish an entry list anywhere. So you don't know exactly who's going to be there. So I went in completely blind. I had no prior knowledge or information of really what it would be. I think I did read Frozen Ed's book, Tales from Out There. But other than that, and that, like you read it. And if you've never been out there before, you kind of don't really know what he's talking about. Um, Laz puts out the, the map with that year's course on it because he changes it every year, uh, the day before the race. So you have to bring your own map and mark down, you know, what he draws on there. And that's your map to navigate this course that is not marked in any way. Uh, typically a trail running race, they mark the course. Uh, even, you know, our events that I put on here in Arizona, we even put wrong way markers. We put giant signs, like it would be like on a freeway, do not enter uh, with different colored tape and ribbon. And um, there's nothing out there. There's no handholding at this race. You, you know, you have to be self-sufficient and survive in inclement weather. No one's coming out there. There's not medics out there. There's not aid stations. There's not course markings. There's nothing. Well, there's jugs of water in two spots, but that's it. And you're out there for nine, 12, 15 hours at a time in all sorts of weather, day, night, doesn't matter. Going off, you know, there's sections that are off trail 
Uh, there's some that are on trail, but it's a, it's a mixture. So it's, it's really everything. I just love it. I love all those aspects of this event. I love the weird quirks of it. I love the no markings, the no handholding, the self-sufficiency, the navigation requirements, the kind of wilderness survival, um, all of it. Love it. Yeah. And, and to prove that you've done the course, you have to tear There are books spread out along the course and you have to tear off the page that corresponds with your bib number. Yeah, that was a feature that was added a few years into the event because I think they weren't sure if people went the right way. So I think Frozen Ed might have been the one that, and that's one of the guys that, that has, I think he finished the Barkley the first. That it used to be just a 50 mile edition. I think he was the first finisher of that edition before it became the 100. And they put books, basically anywhere from 10 to 14 books. They hide them in advance out in the forest. And yeah, you rip that page out. You got to bring all 14 pages back to prove you did it. So not only do you have to take good notes on your map and make sure you copy it the right way and, and try and determine if you're actually on the trail, but you also have to find the books. They're, oh. they're, they're not always easily uh, 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 visible. Definitely not. They're typically, <laughs> typically they're, uh, you know, under a rock or in a hollow of some such and such tree. Um, that's the two typical places there that it is. It's in a rock or a hole or in a tree in a hole <laughs> hidden from sight. Yeah. And there is no standard start time. He will, uh, Laz will blow, blow in a conch shell to signal, okay, start time's going to be within, was it 12 hours of, of the blowing of the shell? Uh, not exactly. So he tells, he gives us a 12 hour window of when the event might start. Okay. And then you get a one hour advanced warning before it actually starts. So that's when the shell is blown. One Got hour it. warning. One hour warning. And that could be the start time could officially begin anytime between midnight and noon. So there, you know, it's not like 6am to 6pm. It might start. It's like, yeah, you might, you might go to bed at 9 p.m. and then the shell is blown at 11 p.m. And then now you got to stay up for 60 hours after you got two hours of sleep. <laughs> ah, brutal, brutal. And then he, he lights a cigarette to officially start the race. That's correct. That's it. Okay. And the last little bit of a wrinkle that I know of, maybe you could share more, but is that you don't run the loop the same way each time. You start off one direction and then your second lap is the opposite direction. So historically it was always, it has, I believe always started in a clockwise direction and typically it's been two clockwise loops in a row, then two counterclockwise loops in a row. So you kind of get more or less, I mean, if you started at midnight, you would mostly do your first lap in the dark, but a lot of times it's, a good part of it's in the day. So you have a day loop, then you have a night loop, then you have a reverse day loop and a reverse night loop. And then fifth is your choice. But lately, you know, he's been changing it up. So yeah, one year it was, you know, clockwise and counter, then clockwise and counter or clockwise, clockwise. It's just, he mixes it up and you never know now. Mm -hmm. um, again, he's never started it in the counterclockwise direction but who knows, like this could be the, the year that he introduces that and that maybe throws us for a loop. 
Yeah, with the length of the laps and the direction of the loops and the daytime and the nighttime, I mean, that is diabolical. That, that you're, you're going through different parts of the course or the same parts of the course at different times of the day um, and trying to, to, trying to find your way. Your navigation skills have to be spot on. Yeah, and especially for those that are new first-timers, I mean, if you have at least two in a row was kind of nice because you do it once, maybe you're following, you know, people have done it before, and then you get out on that second one, you're like, okay, this is familiar, I remember this, I remember this, and you kind of get to learn it because it's pretty fresh in your mind. And then it does, that is hard. It's hard to turn it the other way because have you been looking behind you those previous loops? If you have, it's good because you get to kind of learn it from the opposite direction, but it's not as easy as you think following a course in reverse. It looks very different. Um, but yeah, I mean, immediately turning us around, like if you do a daytime loop in one direction, you have to turn around and immediately do a nighttime loop opposite way. That's really hard, especially if you've never been out there before. Very challenging. Not to mention the weather, which we haven't talked about much yet. We have not. Let's talk about that a little bit. How was the weather in 2015? Uh, I'm trying to even think. All the years start to blur together. I've now have five attempts, but um, I mean, there's always going to be rain and mud at some point. I think... I do remember the one thing that stands out for me was loop two at night. It was very, very cold. I was with John Kelly. It was his first time running. And I just remember it getting very cold and like all of everything was shimmering with ice, like glittering just in your headlamp. And then we got to the top of the fire tower and that's one of the spots where he puts jugs of water out. So there's purified water. Otherwise you, it's recommended to treat the other, the creeks that are flowing in the park. And so these jugs of water were frozen blocks of ice, like a whole gallon, just a complete block of ice. So you can't get water up there. You have to just get it from the streams down below, but it was so cold. Um, that was my main takeaway. Oh, and then, um, I guess, yeah, there was a crazy storm that sprung up on, on loop four for me. And, it started raining on me and I was so tired that I, I laid on this big stump just being poured on in the rain. I didn't even care because I was so tired, just like raining on me. Don't care. I'm asleep, whatever. Um, it is what it is. Now you were there in 2015. Did you, have you ever seen the documentary? I'm sure you have uh, Gary Robbins where dreams go to die. Yep. Was that one of the two years that was featured in that, that documentary? No, 2015 was the year before that. So that was 2016 was his first year in 2017. And I skipped 2016, but I was back in 2017, the year of his, the epic six second um, failure. Spoiler alert. In case yeah, anybody yeah, watches yeah, the yeah. Uh, documentary. So if I go back and watch where dreams go to die, am I, am I going to see uh, any footage of Jamil out there? I think I, yeah, I'm, I'm in there for that second year, 2017. You'll see me at the start, I think. Nice. Okay. Hey, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, I want to get down to some uh, nitty gritty details of the actual race itself. And then we'll talk about what's, what's coming up this year in Slam of the Damned Part 2 for Jamil. So stay tuned for that. We'll be right back.
Hi, my name is Billy Yang. I'm a filmmaker and podcaster. I'm Elon Lieber. I'm a work in marketing for Equator Coffees. And I'm Gabby Modier, and I'm a run coach. And you guys are listening to the John Freaking Muir podcast. All right, welcome back. Jamil, let's get to the nitty gritty of your 2015 Barkley Marathon attempt. Uh, so the, the, the horn blows, he lights a cigarette, and you guys are off. How does it go? What, what, what are the, the things that really stand out in your mind from those four loops? And I I'd certainly want to hear about how it all ends up with the, uh, you finishing the fourth loop and uh, coming up a little bit short. So, Yeah. Uh, again, it's kind of fuzzy, but I'll do my best. It's, um, I should probably write better race reports so I can remember what the heck happens out there. Uh, and the Barkley can be such a blur sometimes too. It happens sure. so fast and and everything. But I remember, um, you know, loop one, most definitely just trying to settle in with a pack, but still wanting to run my own race, but working together with some other of the runners, especially ones that I had worked with before in 2014, you know, we all have huge aspirations. We all want to finish five loops. We're all gung ho about that. And so, uh, we get out there, we start finding books and, and we're making, I think pretty good time. Like, I don't think we had any major issues on the first loop. Uh, second loop in the dark in the, in the same direction as loop one. That's back then he, he did that. It was the same every year. And I remember leading a pack of quite a big pack, maybe five or six of us still together in loop two. And we were on the section descending off jury Ridge and I think I had nailed this in 2014 and then even the first loop in 2015. So I was feeling very confident, start running down, like maybe even like a little cocky, like, oh man, I'm going to lead this charge. I'm going to show them that I'm like master navigator, totally looped too far to the left. Didn't check my bearing wrapped. You do these series of switchbacks up the mountain. And then I was dropping off this ridge and I, wrapped us a little left to the point that we ended up back on one of the switchbacks that we had just came up and we had to redo like the three or four or five switchbacks to get back up to the same exact spot to drop off the ridge again. And it was, I remember being so embarrassed and mad at myself that I just, once I got back on the right track, I just took off and I think everyone kind of ended up keeping together to that next book. I, I really took off after the next book. Like once we successfully got to it, I was just embarrassed. I was like, I want to just get away from everyone. So I just started charging up this hill called Hillpocalypse and basically left everyone in the dust except for one guy. And that was John Kelly. So just burned out the whole pack. It's like, I don't want to ruin their race anymore. And um, just wanted to get away from everyone. So that was like the initial memory from like the first couple loops. Um, mm -hmm. And then, it, it, it was probably good because it did separate from this big pack. And sometimes the, you know, if those people had not been with me and following me in this big pack, they wouldn't have gone off as much, right? They would have probably thought for themselves and been more deliberate. And so I think the pack mentality, it's, it becomes a group think sometimes, and you do things that you wouldn't do if you're thinking more for yourself. So it's a good Barkley lesson, I think, to, to remember. And 
you know, probably because I had so many people following me, I had this extra added pressure that I wouldn't have if I was by myself. So uh, essentially from there, John Kelly and I, we partnered up and that's when we were going through that really cold night. And we ended up running uh, loop three together. And at some point, this was John's first ultra marathon, uh, which is kind of crazy to think about now because he's so accomplished and has done so much, like so many more things than I have even at this point, I feel like. And, but yeah, it was his first ultra. He's the local guy from down the street. Um, didn't really know what he was doing. Your first ultra being the Barkley Marathon. So that's like your first uh, overnight hike being the PCT. Yeah, exactly. That's crazy. Um, but it just, he ran marathons and stuff. So, and did triathletes and Ironman. So it okay. wasn't, I mean, but still, it was a new thing for him. And so about halfway through that third lap, you know, we're, we're running together and, and he's got kind of, you can't remember him having a little bit of a negative attitude or he was just in a low, a low spot and just like taking more time with breaks. Like when we go to a book, sit down. So like, I'm kind of feeling a little bit antsy. I need to go. If we don't get going and pick up our pace, we're not going to be able to get into camp with our fun run done with enough time to maybe sleep and get out on four. And I'm like, there's no chance at five loops if I don't go. So at some point I flipped the switch maybe with three or four books to go. And I just started running as hard as I could. I felt great. So I was like running hard and John was sticking with me, but he now no longer had time to take those stop breaks and to eat and take care of himself. He was just trying to hang on to me. It's his first time out there. So uh, I remember getting the final book on that loop and then I just took off and, and I figured at this point he could find his way back to camp. So I just got to go. I think I put 12 minutes on him in the final two miles down to camp. Like it was that much difference. And he came into camp, I think looking like a ghost and his family is like shocked. They've never seen him in this condition before and thinking he needs to be done. And I think, I don't remember if he even started loop four. I think he just was toast. So I got a little rest, got refixed with my gear and I headed back out. And, and I think I was any, the only, Oh, was, go there ahead. Any, was there any conversation between the two of you on that, on that third loop or as you're out there going through this, torturous experience it's just uh kind of grunts and head nods oh no we're 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 chatting we're working together okay. we're getting to know each other oh yeah we're just having a, a good time out there All i right. think towards the end of that loop we were there was less of that because i was pushing and i think he was just trying to hang on for dear life mm -hmm. so um less talking then yeah. <laughs> And then I don't, I don't, I remember maybe seeing, I think I came in and got a shower in the bathhouse there and got all changed and, and before I headed out. So it got kind of refreshed, but mm -hmm. I think I remember seeing him come in, but um, like I said, I don't, I don't know that he went back out. So I was the only one at the end of the day to start loop four that year. So I was kind of the last person standing. I didn't know it at the time, but um, headed out on loop four and yeah, that's where that storm basically going up the first ridge that can see like lightning in the distance and there's starting to be something brewing and um, not a good started, omen. To, started to lose it, honestly. Yeah. And what is what what is your your state of mind at this point? You've been at it for more than 36 hours with no sleep, little sleep. 
um, how's your thinking process going? Wasn't great. Um, I started, I was starting to lose it and I, I can, I think I can deal with sleep deprivation a lot better now, but back then it was still pretty new. Like I'd never gone that long before. Um, I mean, this was even before Hard Rock and UTMB that year, because this race happened in the spring and those were in the summer. So I hadn't even yet had those 36, 37 hour experiences. So Barkley Fun Run, you know, the year before I had done 40 hours. That was, I think, my limit. So right around this loop four, I'm, I'm heading out there into, you know, getting to be the limit of how long I've been out in one of these events. And I remember going up from book two on that reverse loop and very, it was very sleepy and didn't feel like I was in the right place. Um, I thought that I should have been right along the river on this one section following this river. And then I was going to cut across and all of a sudden I was climbing up and the river was like way down there. I was like way below me. And I was like, this isn't right. Something's wrong. I'm on, I'm off the wrong course, the wrong trail. So I went all the way back down to where the book was. I confirmed I was in the right spot, went all the way back up. It's like, this has to be right. It doesn't feel right. I'm just going to, maybe I just need a nap. And I think I just like laid against a tree or sat down by a tree, maybe tried to set a watch alarm. And I thought I was asleep for 10 minutes and I was asleep for 40. I was like, Oh no, like I've just lost a ton of time. And then it started to rain and I couldn't wake myself up enough to be alert to figure out, I think if I was in the right spot or like where to go. And I, I think I eventually kind of figured out I was, I was on course and I started climbing, but then I was getting cold cause I couldn't, I wasn't moving. Like I fell asleep in the rain. I was getting really, really, really cold. And I thought, well, I'm going to wait out the storm a little bit. So I crawled under this overhanging rock and I was freezing. Like my feet were totally numb. And I was like, I'm going to get my space blanket out. Cause I always carry one of those, put that over me. And that was like probably, I mean, it was a good choice for wilderness survival, but probably the worst choice for the Barkley because I got warm and I fell asleep. And when I woke up, it was light out. And it's like, well, I think my race is over. And, and it was, I mean, I had, I had wasted, I think I was asleep for like five or six hours. That was, right probably, there. that was probably a pretty deep sleep. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I was like probably within a couple hundred yards of the next book right there too. Like I, I, I think I had trouble finding it actually. I got up there and I was wandering around and I was just getting cold and I couldn't maintain body heat. So I really, I felt like I had no choice but to try and get warm there and, and to tuck in and get out of the rain. And so how, how far into the loop was, were you at that point? I was basically almost at book three when that happened. Okay. So not, not super far in. And then you finished the, the remainder of that loop. Yeah. So that was, that was the thing and that maybe was kind of a controversy. Um, like I got up and I was like, well, like I'm not quitting, you know, even though I lost a ton of time, I'm going to finish this loop and, I'm going to go find all the books and I'm going to make my way around the course. Like I don't quit. I don't quit anything. Mm -hmm. Never quit a race on purpose. And 
So I just was like, well, and it was a beautiful day too. It was like sunny and warm and nice. And I'm like, ah, like free training. And I knew I wasn't going to make it to loop five, but I thought, well, when else am I allowed to be out here on the course and be on these trails? You're not. So I'm still in the race. I'm still going to get the books. I know I'm good and safe and I'm going to go do this. And, and of course I wasn't thinking about Laz at camp and all of, you know, my support crew and the other runners who are at camp or people on the internet who are, you know, wondering where I am. There's no one out there to tell that I'm okay. And so that part of it, probably a little irresponsible. Um, they ended up sending some people out to check different books on the course, on the loop, to see if I had pulled that page. Um, and I think there were people that were up on the fire tower that night waiting for me that just, I never got there. So they, they at least knew I was, they were kind of honing in on the part of the course I was. And I ended up being eight hours over overdue, essentially, by the time I got back to camp. And uh, it was right, I think, just before dark. So I, I didn't have to go back out into another night. But that experience, it ended up being 56 hours, four loops. I had every page. Laz never counted them because I was over cut off. And, and that was it. That was the end of it. Wow. What a story. What a story. And I'm, I'm excited to do this next section with you here because this is a first for, for us on the pod, the top five list, top five list of your, your favorite Barkley marathon moments, any aspect of from opening the letter to anywhere on the course or the prep or anything else, just your top five Barkley moments. Top five moments. Um, one moment would be my first fun run finish running with Alan abs and John Fegverisi, who's a previous Barkley finisher. We were chasing the clock for hours and we finished with five minutes to spare. It's like such a moment for me. Um, for sure. I would say another moment was the year after Gary's run in where dreams go to die and like a little bit of a spoiler alert, but I think most people have probably seen it. If not, go check it out. But there's, there's a moment towards the end having to do with six seconds, like being over a cutoff. And the next year I was with Gary when we got to book two on the course. And I happened to be filming that year because Gary needed people to carry GoPros because some media company was doing a documentary. And so I had my GoPro turned on. Gary is like the first to the book. He, he pulls out the book and the title of the book is six seconds. And I caught that on film. So like that was an unbelievable Barkley moment to capture on film that I'm very proud of. Um, that was a moment. Um, I would say probably like just Barkley boot camps in general is a moment for me. Um, just going out there, I call it Barkley boot camp. It's going out uh, about a month in advance of the race and training out there on course. Uh, not, not off trail, but in the park, uh, is a great moment. Um, man, what are some other good moments? I would say the frozen jugs of water is a moment that sticks out. I know I shared it. Um, and then I would say climbing the meat grinder is, is a huge moment for me that that was the new, the new climb on the Barkley course in 2019. And 
Laz was teasing us all spring. A lot of times he'll tease us about the new section coming and kind of all this misdirection and mystery about how big it is and what it's going to be. And, and it, all of us are like studying our maps, like trying to plan out like, Oh, what did he find now? You know, what's he going to do to us now? And he found this crazy new climb that I think redefines the difficulty of the race. I mean, he's done this many times over the years, but this, this meat grinder climb is extremely challenging and long and it puts these other climbs that I thought were really tough when he added them back in the day, just look like a bunny hill. So I had to go up climbing the meat grinder on loop three last year in the dark before a fun run finish with Johan and Tomo. Um, That was an amazing moment. It was very hard and it's going to make like the next five loop finisher is going to have to climb that thing two or three times. And you know, it's never been done before. So it's going to be, only five of us have climbed it yet. And um, that's going to be amazing to see. Fantastic. Thank you for that top five. Yeah. That, that is an epic top five right there. Yeah. All right. Hey, let's, let's transition a little bit. Let's talk about the Slam of the Damned Part 2. Yeah. Uh, 2021 edition. You were able to get into uh, some similar races, races with similar difficulty. The Hard Rock again, uh, Mont Blanc again. Um, this year, instead of uh, the Hurt, though, you're in the, is it Cocodona 250? Yep, that's it. And the Barkley. Which of those four, have you done any of those four yet this year? Uh, nope, hasn't they're started all, yet. They're all upcoming, okay. Yeah, they're all upcoming, and um, Barkley will be the first, actually, this year. And when is the Barkley? Uh, it's coming up. That's all I can say. <laughs> You'll know when it comes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Part of the mystique. Yep. And what, uh, you, you're a five-time participant in the Barkley. So I was going to ask, what, what are you going to do differently from 2015? But uh, just in general, what's your approach to the Barkley this year? What, what have you changed in your training regimen to get yourself ready for the meat grinder? Yeah. Um, well, and number one, I'm, I'm more experienced in general. So you know, I've got like 15 loops on the course now. Um, compared to 2015, I just had three. Um, I've also spent now three years in a row uh, going out there in advance training on the course. So I probably have maybe close to f- 13 to 15 days of just training on the trails in Frozenhead, the the ones you're allowed to train on. Um, you can't train off trail uh, in the park. It's just, if you do it, you're in, they finds out, you know, you'll be banned from the event. So, um, I think that's a huge thing. Um, I got a late start to my training this year. I had a bit of an injury in the fall, but, um, I just put in a really big block this last week, bigger than I've ever done in a week before. So I'm trying to, but I'm trying to keep my mileage high. So not just do only vert or only hiking, but I'm also trying to run, like run legitimate miles. So I build fitness. And so that's probably different than 2015. I didn't really know how much to train for it in 2015. So we'll see, we'll see if it's enough. I, I like I said, I feel like I got started late. So I'm playing a bit of catch up. Hopefully the body holds up and we can get, you know, a little bit more training in here. Okay. And uh, if it's this year, if it's a future year that you send 
Laz, his cigarettes. Uh, will you will you come back on the pod and, and talk to us about that experience? Absolutely. I'd love to. Fantastic. Now, there are no international competitors this year for the Barkley. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, again, I'm not exactly sure who's in the race, um, mm-hmm. but I believe it's almost impossible for them to get here. Yeah. So um, there might be at least one, you know, like an international kind of that lives in the U S. So, um, I don't know if you would consider, you'd probably still consider them an international competitor if they're, you know, from a different country, but have been residing here mm-hmm. kind of goes both ways, but right. could be considered, but yeah, I, we're not going to be seeing, um, I think some people have announced like that typical international entrance, like Gary Robbins and Carol Saab, who's did really well last year, you know, they've kind of announced they're not coming. So those are the only ones we're sure of. Yeah, I saw that on on Gary Robbins' Instagram feed that he he made the official announcement not, not that long ago that he would not be competing. I wasn't sure if it was because of injury or or what uh, was going on with him. I think it was the travel and the just the restrictions. I think if if he did come to the U.S. and he'd have to quarantine under his own expense to go back to Canada, and then if he did somehow contract COVID here he would have to quarantine here. He wouldn't be allowed to board the plane to Canada. So he'd have to wait 10 days, two weeks away from his family, away from his job and business, um, all on his own dime, just sit in a hotel and quarantine, you know, and potentially if he had adverse effects, you know, Mm -hmm. then he's in the U S healthcare system. So who knows his medical coverage here and how that works. So I think, you know, there's a lot to it. Got it. Got it. All right. Hey, let's, uh, let's switch to um, something that you are uh, really involved in and are the founder. Is it Ara Vipa running? Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's, um, that's our trail running events business. And I got into that, um, directed my first event in 2008. It was the Havilene 100. And from there, we grew. Um, that was after my Arizona trail through hike. So I basically... I uh, never went back to my tax job I mentioned earlier. Instead, I focused on directing this one race. And and from there grew um, a whole kind of community of events here in Arizona, uh, surrounded trail and ultra running, what I love to do. And yeah, we now put on something like 40 events annually between trail running events and mountain biking events. And um, it's a good time. Fantastic. I was going to ask earlier how you balanced your tax accounting job against all the training that has to go into uh, preparing for these, these races. But it sounds like you, you left that uh, in the, the rearview mirror quite a while ago. Yeah. I, yeah, it was just one season of that for me. Just one season. That was enough, right? Yeah. And I mean, it was a temporary thing for me. I'd always wanted to own my own business. I come from a family of entrepreneurial people and so it was never a question that I would, you know, would not do that. I think it's in my blood. I have to do it. Um, and it just was a matter of time before I figured out what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very good. And so you're able to support all of your adventures and your lifestyle through Aravipa running and sponsorships? Uh, yeah. I mean, primarily through, through my business for sure. Um, I do have, you know, some support from some brands, primarily Solomon, um, for shoes and gear. I I get a lot of advanced shoe models, which is awesome. Um, then I also do some filming for them and some media coverage for Solomon as well. So I, 
that's the other thing I love to do is I love um, filming other people telling and sharing their stories. Um, really, my whole goal is, you know, I love this sport and what it's done for my life and getting in the outdoors. And I want to share that with people, inspire people to give it a try, give it a shot. And so any way I can do that, uh, I feel very fulfilled doing that. Okay. I was going to ask what's next for Jam Jam, but it sounds like Slam of the Dam 2 is what's next for Jam Jam. That's the focus of the year. Yep. Okay. How, how, uh, what is the time interval between the four events? Yeah. So, um, yeah, we're going to have, man, less than, not a lot of time. <laughs> Probably like six weeks on average, I think, between most of them. Um, so, um, yeah, we're coming up. Barkley always falls right around April Fool's weekend historically. Uh, it's always kind of plus or minus that time frame. So I can say that much. Just, I mean, if you go back and look at the dates, you can see that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then May 3rd through the 8th is Cocodona 250. And that's, it's the inaugural year of that race. And it's one, it's a race I created. So um, it's kind of wild. Like, you know, had this vision for this event. Um, I hired someone to help produce the event this year and, and the rest of our team. And I'm going to toe the line and, and it's now part of the series. So I figure, you know, hurt didn't happen this year. And it honestly wasn't even on my radar. This kind of all came together in the last month or so when I got into UTMB and, um, after Cocodona, that'll be May third for me, it'll hopefully be less than five day cutoff. I'm hoping to finish faster than that. Uh, but hard rock will be in mid to late July, around July 20th. And then, so I'll have the most time there. And then UTMB is the end of August. So we're talking five weeks between hard rock and UTMB this year. Wow. Now the, the Cocodona 250, that's 250 miles. That's correct. Is it loops or is it a, uh, is it a, a straight line? Straight, it's a po- straight line. Yeah. Point to point event uh, and it starts in black canyon city uh, rock springs just north of phoenix and it travels through a diverse ecosystem so you're in the desert on the black canyon trail you climb up to the town of crown king it's one of the oldest saloons in arizona the crown king saloon it's like over 100 years old um, so you can take a shot of whiskey if you want i was gonna ask yeah good you're on your way towards Prescott, Arizona. You're crossing the Bradshaw Mountains and a, a range that not a lot of people have crossed on foot before. Prescott is an awesome town. It's right around a mile high, 5,200 feet, and they've got Whiskey Row. So there's even more going on there. There's a lot of bars and uh, really, it's it was actually, I think, the first territorial capital of Arizona. So there's a ton of history on this course. Uh, after that, you're crossing Fane Ranch, which is this really large family ranch land. There's pronghorn antelope and cattle roaming all over the place. It's high desert grasslands. And then you have to cross another big mountain range, Mingus Mountain. Uh, you'll drop through the town, the like arts community town of Jerome. It's an old mining town that's clinging to the side of this cliff. Then you're going down, crossing the Verde River. You'll actually ford the river near Cottonwood, and you'll climb up and do this amazing loop through Sedona on single track trails, the Red Rocks. It's, I mean, it's world famous stuff up there. And then you'll climb up on top of the Mogollon Rim 
for the final approach and you'll go through you know the largest ponderosa pine forest in the world around flagstaff and you'll climb to the top of mount eldon highest point on the course right before you descend down you'll finish in downtown flagstaff uh right in the heart of the town there um it's incredible you know once in a lifetime journey i think for a lot of our participants you know something that should be like unlike any other race out there is is our goal it sounds absolutely epic that's fantastic hey uh one more question about the barkley when yep. it, when it comes up uh you know plus or minus one week around april 1st if you know they have limited viewership in terms of being actually able to be there if someone is if someone like myself is interested in the actual race and following your progress what is the best way to do that yeah, Twitter. So if you ever heard of this, download Twitter. It's a great app. Um, yeah, Keith Dunn. Uh, follow Keith Dunn on Twitter. Um, you could also follow me and I'm sure I'll, you know, tweet out, I'll retweet his link to follow along. Um, but yeah, Keith Dunn on Twitter is historically the the guy who's there. He knows all the Barkley history and he he's the best guy to, to tweet out updates. Um, and he's always... He has fun with it. He, I think he, uh, he does a good job of keeping a little bit of mystery and, uh, but covering it really well. Like as much as you can cover a race where even the people there present don't get any updates for nine to 12 hours on what's going on. Fantastic. I will be following his feed religiously from the middle of March on to make awesome. sure I do not miss a moment. Very good. Hey, Jam Jam, you know where we are? uh the end of the show we are at that time of the episode where i ask you for your pro tip insight of the week what do you have for us pro tip inside of the week i would say honestly i said it in the show a little bit always carry a space blanket on your next adventure i think it's the the lightest piece of gear that if you get caught out there in some sort of an emergency you won't die you're going to keep warm and you're going to make it to your next adventure Excellent. Excellent advice. So there you have it. That's it. This bonus episode for season two is in the books. I hope our listeners enjoyed our time with Jam Jam. I want to thank him for joining us this week. Jamil, how can our listeners keep up with you on social media and where can they find updates on your latest adventures? Yeah, thanks for asking and thanks for having me. Uh, you can find me just at Jamil Curry on most all of the social media platforms. I'm also going to be posting some videos on my YouTube channel. It's called Run Steep, Get High. Go subscribe over there and there will be Slam of the Damned content all year long. We're going to be going more in depth on these stories and hopefully giving you an inside look at what's going on. Fantastic. Remember to check out the pod on social media as well. We're on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. That app that uh, you may not have heard of that uh, Jam Jam was referring to. And if you have comments or clips you want to share, you can send it to me at johnfreakinmuir at gmail.com. Uh, Jamil, I'm also looking to you to give our listeners your recommendation for uh, some sort of adventure media to keep our, our listeners connected to the trail. So something like a, a book, a movie, a documentary, YouTube channel, yeah, wh wh whatever you have for us. Any, any recommendation for adventure media? Man, I mean, I would plug my own stuff, I guess, but Run Steep, Get High. Uh, we try and cover, we're going to be covering some stuff on Steep Life Media. I would say um, 
I mean, I would always recommend some of the best YouTube filmmakers in adventure media. I would say Ethan Newberry, The Ginger Runner, and Billy Yang Films, I would say are some of the best inspirational stuff out there. So check them out. They're some of my role models for filmmaking. So this Saturday, uh, for, for our listeners out there, um, who may be listening to this episode after it, after it comes out, obviously. But this Saturday coming up is February 27th, I believe. And that episode on the John Freakamere podcast is Billy Yang, uh, along with Gabby and Elon from his um, trip on the John Muir Trail. It is a fantastic episode, and he is, he is very entertaining. That's awesome. Yep. All right. That is a wrap from the John Freakamere studio. Any shout outs to friends or family, Jamil? Um, shout out to my son, Taggart. All right. Very good. Well, thank you for tuning in. Always remember the trail is the trail. It doesn't care if you want to go downhill. It doesn't care if it's almost dark and you're looking for a campsite. It doesn't even care if you're halfway up the meat grinder after being awake for 37 consecutive hours. The trail is the trail. Embrace the suck. (laughs) 